Opponents say it's a risky and expensive operation that leaves future generations with a bill in terms of radioactive waste. Proponents say it's a technology that can generate unparalleled quantities of carbon-free energy with a tiny land footprint. Whichever side of the debate you lean towards, nuclear energy is perhaps unique in that particularly on the left, proponents and opponents seem to be at loggerheads on even the most basic considerations. And there are a lot of them. From expense to safety, and from security to the timescales involved in construction. This is even before we think about the place of nuclear power within the society in which we live. The ticking clock posed by fossil fuels, the viability of a fully renewable grid, and the question of nuclear energy's relationship to the nuclear weapons industry, let alone the question of the society we want to live in. Should energy generation be centralised or decentralised? Should energy ever depend on mining for minerals? And what exactly do we owe future generations? Beyond the most technical considerations, what makes this debate so complicated on the left is that it cuts across political intuitions, political traditions, and, some might argue, political aesthetics. As we know, we absolutely must transition away from our reliance on burning fossil fuels. And, in Britain at least, the announcement of a new raft of support for the creation of nuclear power stations has put the question of nuclear energy firmly back on the agenda. My name is Craig Gent, Head of Operations at Navara Media, and to discuss this topic today on Navara FM, we have the pleasure of being joined by Matthew T. Huber and Andrea Vetter. Matt is a Professor of Geography at Syracuse University in the United States and author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. And Andrea is a transformation researcher, activist and journalist in Germany and co-author of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. Both books are available from Verso. Andrea, Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. No problem. So the question of nuclear power is obviously tied up with a whole set of other uh, questions. And especially if we want to think about different socialist imaginaries of the future through the lens of energy and necessarily climate change. But I want to start on a terrain that will be familiar to most listeners. So obviously nuclear power does exist. Um, as we're speaking, I just checked it on the grid watch. It's accounting right now for between 15 and 20% of uh, electricity on the grid in Britain. Uh, but when it comes to the future, most people are falling behind two options. So either we can choose not to establish new nuclear power stations, effectively decommissioning the existing crop as plants come to the end of their life cycles, or we could actually extend and expand our use of nuclear power. So I want to start with Matt. Where, where do you stand on this? Well, I, I think all of us can agree if we're, if we're in a climate emergency and we need just rapid decarbonization, it's absolutely should be a baseline position on the left that we have to keep all, um, all safe nuclear plants open as long as possible because essentially what happens when you close them is they're often replaced with fossil fuels. So here where I am in New York State, we closed the Indian Point power, uh, nuclear power plant a couple years ago and it was basically replaced with three natural gas um, burning plants and emissions have skyrocketed since the closure. I know I just was reading they're planning to permanently shut down, I think, three reactors in Germany uh, in 10 days from now. And we've seen that the energy crisis in Europe has led Germany to reconsider its um, 
uh, its its goals about phasing out coal. And of course, it continues to be reliant on natural gas. So that's the baseline position. Um, I, I also would say, again, when we're thinking about a scenario in which we not only need to decarbonize existing electricity, but we need to uh, on some estimates, double or even quadruple electricity generation to go through this process of electrifying all the you know transportation and heating. So we're just going to need a massive increase in, in energy capacity and generation and electricity generation. And so in that scenario, it's just, you know, just look at what science is saying. The, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, all agrees that any scenario of decarbonization by 2050 includes nuclear power if we're gonna um, meet the goals of 1.5 or two degrees Celsius. So, I, and, and that means new nuclear power. So we, we do need to build um, new nuclear plants to particularly provide uh, the reliability for uh, grid stability that nuclear provides. It has the highest capacity factor, which means, you know, something like 95% uh, of the time nuclear plants are running reliable, providing electricity to the grid. You can compare that to the capacity factors of solar and wind power, which often are in the 15 to 30% range, which means they are great when they're when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, but uh, they are not always reliable. And so therefore, if we're going to have a grid that has 24-7 reliable energy and we want it to be zero carbon, nuclear is basically our main option because most of the hydro resources have been tapped out around the world. So um, so again, not, I think it should just be uncontroversial that we keep nuclear plants open, but I, I would also argue we need to substantially build up our nuclear capacity um, all around the world. Andrea, I know you're not of the same opinion. Um, and can I ask you why, why you think that uh, nuclear shouldn't have a place in the, the energy mix into the future? Yeah, because I think the whole debate either nuclear power or fossil energy is a wrong opposition. It's not about fossils versus nuclear. It's about fossils and nuclear versus renewable energies. And I totally agree that we should take the IPCC report very earnestly. And they said that now in this decade now, we are deciding for what kind of climate we will have in the next 10,000s of years. This is really crazy to imagine what that means. And that means we have to phase out fossils as fast as possible. And as fast as possible means to create new supports and new um, energy. We have to create <laughs> um, new sources of energy the fastest way possible. And the fastest way possible could never be to build new nuclear power plants, because we all knew that to build new nuclear power plants, it lasts a very long way. It's a very complicated process to, um, to be able to build such a power plant, to get all the, um, all the agreements on that. Um, it is very difficult to get state guarantees and everything because it is considered a very risky technology still. And so I think if we really take it serious that we have to phase out as, as fast as possible, we should take those technologies that are here, that we already know, that are the least dangerous and the least wasteful technologies. And this is surely renewable energies like solar power and wind turbines. 
And I think all the money that is now wasted, and it's basically um, state money and subsidies that is going into research of new sorts of nuclear technologies that should be safer or better or more efficient or whatever, they are all in a testing phase now. All this money would be directed towards storage, better capacities for energy storage for renewables, because I agree it's a problem that we have a high fluctuation in the grid. But nuclear is for sure not the only possibility to stabilize the uh, energy flows, but we need a lot of decentralized storage capacities. And if all this money now going totally in vain, in my opinion, in nuclears would be directed to renewables and their possibilities, this would be a much better path for, yeah, for solving a part of the climate crisis. We also, in addition, should think about scenarios where we don't use ever more energy and more energy and more energy, but think also about degrowing the resources we use and also the energies we use. And we should really invest in rethinking those ways of living and of organizing and of yeah, organizing economically and politically, because this is where we have the possibilities to really change things. Okay, great. So I, I think that the, the both of you out, have outlined just how uh, it is the case that uh, you know nuclear is 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 not just about sort of choosing one energy source over another, but really has um, uh, really has import for when we're thinking about um, the sorts of world we want to live in. Um, I want to park uh, some of those those considerations just just for the moment to address one that I know will be on a lot of listeners' minds, which is obviously the question of safety. You just uh, mentioned it there, Andrea. So obviously, there's a lot of contestation around uh, the safety of nuclear energy. But maybe it's enough to say that there's obviously a lot more energy generation that happens safely and without accidents than happens with accidents, for example. But undeniably, um, there is a degree of public hesitation when it comes to to, to, to hearing that um, you know there might be more nuclear energy in the future. So Matt, I want to ask you how much should we factor in people's fears, for example, uh, when it comes to, to planning um, the economy and particularly a decarbonized future? I think we have to take that seriously. And I think um, I come from geography where uh, the, there's a sort of tradition of analyzing um, sort of how societies and cultures perceive risks and the hazards associated with particular risks. And and nuclear power is kind of a classic case that uh, scholars have called sort of the, how society can amplify risks in ways that don't quite align with the actual uh, science. So there, I think, is a very existing culture of fear around nuclear power, sort of popular attitudes that have some hesitation about it. And, you know, I'm a big believer in democracy and building popular support for our programs. So that's something we have to take seriously. Um, I would say... It seems, uh, again, anecdotally, that um, there seems to be a somewhat of a generational shift. I think there was a very strong anti-nuclear uh, uh, attitudes and, 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 and viewpoints coming out of the 1960s anti-war movement, the anti-nuclear weapons proliferation movement, and, and how that kind of 
combined with the anti-nuke movement, particularly and I think most powerfully in Germany. Um, and so there's some sort of like sort of hardwired anti-nuclearism in the kind of new left that emerged in the 1960s. And a lot of those folks are still around, obviously. But I've noticed that among younger generations that are most concerned with climate change and the and as Andrea put it rightly, like the urgency of transforming our energy system as fast as possible. I have found that um, younger generations are much more open to nuclear power because they see it as a solution to the climate problem. And and again, I want to be clear, it's not it doesn't have to be the only solution. You know, there are very uh, sunny parts of the world and windy parts of the world where it makes a ton of sense to build up renewables. If we can develop storage capacity, that's great. But but um, again, the IPCC and all sort of scientific scientific models say that that nuclear power is going to have to be part of the solution. Um, and again, I, I hinted at this before, but in terms of uh, the safety of various energy sources, um, you know, there's been studies on the relative safety of all these different energy sources. And despite some sort of cataclysmic um, events like Chernobyl and Fukushima, um, when it comes to actual deaths that can be attributed to radiation uh, poisoning from nuclear power, the worst event was Chernobyl, where you can attribute perhaps something like 4,000 uh, or thereabouts deaths from that event. There are no deaths attributed from radiation for Fukushima or Three Mile Island. And so when you add up all these deaths, you can sort of compare the deaths per terawatt hour of various energy sources. And obviously, fossil fuels are so much higher because they kill people on a sort of more, as scholars call it, kind of slow violence, sort of day by day, they emit a pollution that causes heart disease, asthma, all these horrific sort of chronic diseases that lead to deaths. Some estimates say the fossil fuel industry kills about 9 million people per year. Um, and, and in this measure of deaths per terawatt hour, nuclear is considered one of the safest, if not the safest form of electricity generation that we have. And it's either safer or on par with solar and wind, which unfortunately has some risks with it as well. People uh, install solar panels might fall off roofs or fall off wind turbines and um, electric electric electrocution is a risk involved with these technologies so but but they're they're on par with nuclear in terms of safety and when it comes to actual attributable deaths from these these events really it's Chernobyl that was a product of a scurlotic decaying Soviet regime and the other thing I should mention is that, Chernobyl, uh, the nuclear reactor that melted down there did not have a steel containment dome, which literally all the other nuclear plants have today. And so the, the, the probability of that kind of event or that kind of cataclysmic um, meltdown is just not, it's not gonna happen with the reactors we have today because they have these containment domes. And so in sum, <laughs> you know, the, the popular attitudes are real and we have to work to do sort of political education on the on the actual verified safety of nuclear power. But in terms of the science, like it's very clear that nuclear power is very safe and, and compared to the risks and, and the, the, the poison wrapped up in the nuclear power industry, or sorry, the fossil fuel industry, it's it's way, way, way safer, I would say. So Andre, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting 
for me to hear Matt speaking about that because I know, for example, in Germany, a basic kind of anti-nuclear position is common sense, not just for sort of the green movement, but also within like eco-socialist movements. And I know that particularly Fukushima, for example, in 2011, had a massive resonance. Why do you think that in Germany in particular, there's such a strong anti-nuclear tradition? Because from a British perspective, for example, when Matt's describing like a generational shift, I can I can really see that. I was doing some research for a piece of, a couple of years ago and young environmental activists, eco-socialist activists were saying that they weren't really anti-nuclear, but they had a position of constructive ambiguity, as they called it. And the reason for that was actually because they didn't want to alienate older members of the climate movement that was that was the basis for for their for their position um of of ambiguity so so i just wonder from from your perspective and experience within sort of german activist movements um why that's been such a a strong current i find it fascinating i think if we look close at that this we can see that um all the climate justice movement which is quite strong in Germany, which we can see now, like Ende Gelände, you had them also in a podcast, what they do, the kind of civil obedience they have and the kind of um, public engagement they show, they all learned from the anti-nuclear movement in Germany. Like it's a really a long chain of knowledge and of interaction and of learning how to oppose the, the state ideas of gener- generating electricity and generating power on a very unequal sense of territories. So normally the nuclear power plants, they are built in the periphery, especially uh, the waste of the nuclear power plants. Um, they try to um, store that waste at some parts where like state government think that people maybe won't oppose and that didn't happen in Germany. Like it was very, very closely intertwined the ideas about how to build a new democratic society and how to do that in a safer way. And I can tell you from my step-grandmother, who was one of the women who in the 70s like started the anti-nuclear movement in Germany for real, when it was on the Upper Rhine, there was one nuclear power plant that was planned to, to be built there because they wanted to industrialize this whole area, which is an area of, of vineyards and of small farmers, and they wanted to industrialize with big plants like a lead mill and a nuclear power plant and stuff like this. And the people from France and from Germany and from Switzerland, especially women, they joined forces and they went there on these construction sites and, and with their bodies sitting there, bringing their children, uh, knitting their socks, um, doing meals for everybody, for young students who then in the 70s joined these protests, they really could arrive at these plants not to be built. And I think this was a really strong realization in Europe at the time that people coming from different countries, like their fathers, they all killed each other in the Second World War. 
And the daughters of these fathers who had killed each other, like they together sat there and opposed ideas of industrialization that were against what they thought is a good life for all. And I think we see that still to this day in the um, building of nuclear power plants, because when we talk about safety, we shouldn't only talk about the power plants running. And I would agree to Matt that if you regard the total numbers in these power plants exploding, like it's not the most dangerous technology. Um, but it's not only about these power plants exploding and still then you could ask like, can a technology be really a technology we as people fighting for emancipatory politics and for a good life for all could support if this technology is kind of sacrificing some people in some territories if something happens and say, okay, their lives is it has less worth than the lives of others. But we see exactly this politics in the uranium mining because most of the lands where, um, where you find uranium is on indigenous lands. And it is a very dirty industry to do this kind of mining. It's very toxic and a lot of people die by that. And that is not included in like the official death toll that uh, Matt Hubert talked about. And in addition, as we all know, like this technology produces radioactive waste, which will be radioactive for something like 200,000 years from now on. Like this is all the time spent that humankind, Homo sapiens, exists. And only for about 5,000 years, something like a state is existing in Homo sapiens history, and only for something like 500 years, the idea of nation state exists. And it is very unlikely, like I was trained as an anthropologist from an anthropologist point of view, that for all this, uh, all this very long time span, um, there will be such thing as nation states or states as we know them. It's very unlikely, maybe, but it, like really, um, human civilizations and human life is evolving and cultures are evolving and changing and especially with the climate change to come which it looks like it will be really devastating what will happen we just don't know in what kind of era we are now going to and I think it's really not a very good or rational idea to put such problems on the shoulders of our grandchildren and grandchildren, grandchildren, like until the end of times, like felt. And I think this is just morally wrong. Matt, I see you making many notes there. I want to bring you in. I mean, how do, how do you respond to something like that? That's, that, you know, that's, that's an enormous weight of things to think about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'll start by saying, um, I can say, I mean, I'm someone that thinks we really need social movements to, to shape our energy system um, to solve climate change. So in that sense, uh, the anti-nuclear movement sort of an inspiring example of sort of a popular grassroots movement. And I, I, I think, unfortunately, that they are just sort of at least uh, decades later are sort of wrong in terms of, of what we need for uh, the climate crisis. Uh, let me address the waste issue. Um, I think it's a little overplayed. Um, we should be clear that 
nuclear power is incredibly energy dense. One tiny pellet of uranium is able to provide the same amount of energy as a whole ton of coal. And, um, and yeah, and, I saw and, a stat that the, um, so these uranium pellets for listeners are, are about the size of a gummy bear. Yes. And, exactly. and, and they create about as much energy as, as, as burning around about 10,000 gallons of oil. Yeah. But similarly to that, the waste produced from, um, from the fission reactions is incredibly small. Um, so a nuclear reactor, a thousand megawatt for a, one year would create about 27 tons of waste. Compare that to a coal plant, which produces about 130 million tons. So 27 and 130 million tons of toxic coal ash, which is highly radioactive, by the way. And in fact, coal plants are way more radioactive than nuclear plants. All the waste that nuclear power plants around the world have created in their lifetimes could be stacked in a football field. And I think this is an American football field. Uh, they might be similar, actually. It could be stacked in a football field 50 feet high. So there's not a lot of waste. Uh, the waste we have, we know what to do with it. It's stored safely in these you know, impenetrable casks. Finland is now um, uh, developing geological storage repositories in, in, a, in a very safe manner. And, you know, it is, uh, Andrea's right, it is radioactive, but the, what we know about radioactive material is it declines in its radioactivity and its, it, and its toxicity over time. Now, we need to be clear that actually uh, renewable energy uh, comes with all sorts of heavy metals and other toxic um, types of materials in solar panels in particular. Uh, and those uh, create tremendous loads of waste when they reach the end of their lifetime. And there's a lot of toxic pollution involved that involves like cadmium and other heavy metals. And by the way, that toxic pollution does not decline with time like radiation. It's just toxic forever. <laughs> so um, that, you know, these are are serious waste problems with the renewable energy industry that we need to raise. The last couple things I'd say is that um, I think Andrea's talking as if sort of development of a, a power plant or industrialization is sort of inherently destructive and, and, and exploitative. But um, we have to understand, you know, we live in an industrial society that's going to have to generate power somewhere. And in fact, that when you look at, at least in my experience in the United States, where there are nuclear power plants, they are sources of jobs for communities and unionized jobs where the communities love these power plants. And by the way, working in these power plants are completely safe and they're exposed to less radiation working in these power plants than they would just taking a flight across the Atlantic. And, um, and so the workers, the ones closest to these reactions and closest to these power plants are the most vociferous proponents of keeping them open. So when Diablo Canyon in California was threatened with closure, it was the workers and the unions that came out in droves protesting the closure. And this happens time and time again. The workers are the ones wanting to keep these plants open. So industrialization for them means it, it does mean jobs. It means uh, livelihoods. It means unionized jobs. The, and that that also links to the uranium mining industry, which has had can be conducted in an extremely uh, exploitative way. And there's pretty tragic and horrific examples of that, particularly in the, the sort of early post-war period in the Navajo reservation in the United States, where there's been pretty 
terrible sort of practices of uranium mining. But but today in northern Saskatchewan in, in Canada, there are, uh, you know, unionized and heavily regulated uranium mining that goes on where a lot of the miners are themselves indigenous and again are themselves supportive uh, not universally. Indigenous peoples are not monoliths. They are uh, highly unequal communities that have, you know, struggles within them. And certainly there are uh, indigenous people that are anti-uranium mining, but there's huge amounts of people that work in the uranium mining industry in northern Saskatchewan who are proponents of that industry, who can, who know that they can do it safely, do it under unionized um, and heavily regulated types of practices. So, and again, uh, in terms of the overall requirements of mining because of the energy density of nuclear there's just not so much uranium mining that you have to do to keep this energy system going whereas for fossil fuels obviously you it's just you dig this stuff up continually and you're burning it and it's creating all these uh, crises of climate change but um renewables obviously as we know as i mentioned require a whole lot of mining and a whole lot of rare earth metals and things like cobalt and lithium and if we want to go to electrification and lithium and all those have pretty horrific toxic consequences as well um so um you know there's no sort of silver bullet a lot of these energy resources have um trade-offs but i'd say nuclear sort of comes out pretty pretty good when it comes to waste when it comes to um these types of uh, concerns you mentioned uh, northern canada there obviously with uranium mining. i mean last last time looked that's around about the uh, sort of second uh, largest um, amount of uranium mining in the world, uh, about 20, 20%, 19%, 20%, um, and about 42 to 45% of uranium mined comes from Kazakhstan, uh, for listeners. And, um, but I suppose I, 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 kind of, I, I kind of want to raise, you know, a potential objection from something that Andrea said earlier, which is that, you know, rather than pitting, for example, uh, you know, the waste of nuclear against the waste of coal, should we not be thinking about the waste of nuclear versus, for example, and you mentioned obviously solar panels, but, you know, the, the waste of um, wind turbines, for example. And I know wind turbines are another, you know, disposing, these are massive, talk about industrialization, these are massive um, you know, concrete and steel infrastructures and the wind turbines themselves have lots of metals and toxic materials in them as well. And, and, and having to dispose of these massive industrial turbines is, is another problem of waste and, and trying to figure out where to put that waste is going to be a challenge. Um, I think it's great that wind turbines and solar panels can generate energy from the sort of free gift of, of sun and wind for, you know, most estimates say about, um, uh, for a wind turbine, maybe 20 to 30 years, but that um, that's not very long. And then when that that lifetime is up, you got to dispose of that stuff. And that's that's a real problem. I would add that um, and Andrea mentioned uh, storage. A lot of the hype now in storage is, of course, lithium batteries. Right. And uh, by the way, those only provide about four hours of backup in most cases and and if we really need if we really want a stable grid we need something called long duration storage which can last hundreds of hours and basically the technology for long duration storage is all very costly and unproven and not and so batteries are not the solution for renewable intermittency there they can only be a very brief kind of spurt on the grid 
And those batteries require tremendous amounts of metals and toxic materials that go into the battery production. The batteries themselves, when they're linked into the grid in these mega battery plants, can often catch on fire. As we've heard, lithium batteries have a propensity to catch on fire. So there's a lot of risks uh, with the battery um, power generation or storage, but also just the battery supply chain, um, the lithium mining, the, the, the toxic metals. So when you're talking about waste, what do you do with the batteries when they reach the end of their life? And all of us that have a smartphone know how, how these batteries don't particularly last very long. And, and that creates really toxic waste flows, e-waste flows that need to be dealt with. So again, we need to sort of look at the waste of all these different technologies. And you're right, not just fossil fuel, all of them have waste flows and we need to sort of think about them and compare them. Andrea, I want, I want to bring you in again. So, I mean, I guess there's the possibility here then that, that there is just going to be a certain amount of mining and a certain amount of, because obviously, you know, wind turbines rely on um, iron ore mines and also silica sand mines for, for carbon fiber to, uh, blades and so on. Um, is there just a certain amount of mining and also waste, potentially toxic waste that we have to factor into any future decarbonized economy or or do you think there are you know, other ways we can think about this? Yeah, I think here we see very clearly that the problem of energy generation cannot be solved within capitalist markets. Because in capitalist markets, we always see that um, there is private enterprises or also some state-run enterprises that act like private enterprises on a market and they want to increase their profit. That's like their goal. Um, but if we really want to have an economy and technology that is environmentally friendly in all kinds of aspects and that is also socially much more just than all that we have now, um, we need a kind of circular society uh, with a really circular economy, not the thing that is discussed now within uh, neoliberal markets. Um, and talking about this, like we need a design um, and engineering construction of things like solar panels, of things like wind turbines and all kinds of technology. You mentioned smartphones, Matt, before, like um, that all these things go to waste so early that it's not inherent in this technology, but it's inherent in capitalism. And capitalism is the problem here, because if we would have like other um, other frameworks, um, like other juridical um, norms and organizations in another kind of economy that really cares for the recycling and reuse of these kinds of minerals, materials. We could think about urban mining as the main um, mining resource for using these minerals and try to keep it as long as possible in, in a circle of production and consumption. But that cannot be possible inside capitalist logics. Um, and I think that is the main problem here. Um, and the same goes for mining, of course. As you, as you mentioned, um, we need whole sets of regulation to make mining um, more safe and more just, but it still stays with the fact that mining can only be done where these materials you need are under the surface. 
And this is often, like, this is always then the region there has an environmental problem, always. And you somehow have to deal with that as a society, like how to deal with that always unjust thing that some people have to sacrifice their land um, in order to make it possible for others to generate energy. And I think there is no way out of this. I mean, I, I do not say we don't have to generate energy. We do have. But we should really consider this fact very seriously and not lightly. And therefore, I think it is highly important to think about how to save energy and how to organize societies in a way that they use less energy instead of more. So, for example, we have all kinds of sectors, I'm talking about them here, like take the mobility sector. The If we all, all of these fossil automobiles will be electric automobiles, we will have a lot of problems um, because that will not solve, uh, of course, it will solve some fossil problems, but we, we have all these problems of toxic waste as well and of resources and of mining and everything. And so we need a shift in our transportation system to more public transport. This is only one example. Same goes for heating our houses. If we, we cannot solve this problem technologically, if still everybody lives on 50 square meters in early industrialized countries, which is totally nuts. But we have to think about other forms of living together that um, generate joy, fulfillment and a good life and use less energy. And this is not a technological problem. It's a societal problem. It's an um, economic problem. So, Andrea, if I can ask then, what do you see as what do you think the role of energy is in a socialist future? I think the role of energy um, and the big possibility we see now in renewable energies is that a livable future will be much more decentralized than the um, economic and societal organization we see now for a lot of reasons, like for democratic reasons, it's much easier to govern more decentralized organizations and empower people and really take a decision about what their life should look like. Um, but then also these renewable energies, they are in itself, in the technology itself, are decentral. And this gives a lot of power back to people naturally and back to where people live um, because you can create kind of your own energy where you live and you can consume it there. And we need a lot of, like we need regulations that allow this production and consumption of energy where it is created. And this opens up a lot of possibilities for commons, like for commonly organized production of energy, like it is done already in energy cooperatives, for example, that really people take care about their own infrastructures and don't outsource this to some kind of state um, or interstate structures that are very vulnerable. As we see now, they are vulnerable either from geopolitical disturbances and they are vulnerable from climate change effects. And so I think 
a society, a more just society with decentralized energy production is really at hand here if we, and we should concentrate all our efforts on creating these renewable energies in a more circular way. Um, also talking about um, open source technologies, for example, uh, so taking out of the of the profit making of private companies, of um, a lot of investment, state investment, um, of research into open technologies and also small scale and modular technologies. Um, and I still do not see why we should invest in nuclear here, because nuclear is really the opposite of emancipatory technology production. So, Matt, I mean, that naturally, that makes me want to ask the, the same question to you about the, you know, the role of, of energy in, in, in what you would see as a socialist future. And I suppose as a supplementary question, you know, do you think energy can be democratized and, and, and uh, you know, where does, where does nuclear energy play into that? First, I would say, again, uh, I agree uh, with Andrea that the problem is capitalism. And when these energy systems are run, uh, including renewables, are run for profit by private capitalists, they tend to not care about these larger ecological concerns and um, uh, or just social concerns about the good life, as, as she said. And so um, I would... I would agree that basically a socialist society would commit towards a more sort of rational ecological planning of resources. And, and, and I totally agree that that should include more public transit and more, you know, collective consumption of, of resources. So things like um, co-housing and public social housing where people are living in dense urban environments that share resources in rational ecological ways, like I'm all on board for that. Um, I do think this 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 has been a sort of a trope, or if you will, of the environmental movement since the '60s. Again, that's a sort of utopia of going towards a more decentralized energy system. I've written some stuff about how this kind of ideology of decentralized energy has actually aligned with a uh, a neoliberal project of of that really champions the decentralized price mechanism and decentralized markets. And has been a kind of not not knowingly, but a sort of unwitting handmaiden to the the deregulation of elect electricity markets, and and in the United States, the, the renewable energy industry is sort of aligned with environmentalists to call for more deregulation, more marketization of the grid, and 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 so there's some sort of problematic things going on there, um, and and I would say that basically this sort of green vision of decentralized energy is is still very much a utopia that. At least in the United States, basically, basically like 86% of the grid is still provisioned by centralized, reliable, 24-7 power plants. And that's, you know, the, 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 the 20th century electricity grid has been heralded as like one of the most unbelievable uh, inventions of the 20th century. The, 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 this grid that's anchored in centralized power plants is, is not something we should just sort of uh, flippantly dispense with. I think it's something, and I and I also think there's a, a more sort of classical Marxist socialist vision of 
really what Marx talked about is how capitalism centralizes the productive forces and centralizes production and socializes production to make it highly more efficient, highly more efficient in the use of labor, really ramps up the, um, the labor productivity. And so and then this this vision that that the working class could then, you know, seize these these highly efficient socialized forms of production and repurpose them towards again these more ecological or social ends um so so i think i think nuclear power fits beautifully in that vision um it's a highly again it's such an efficient form of energy production where it takes so little uranium and we haven't talked about this but if you want to like have an ecological society with lots of land for biodiversity, nuclear power is one of the the most land least land intensive forms of power generation you could ever imagine. You can generate tremendous amounts of energy on tiny, tiny bits of land. So you can have people doing public transit. You can have people living in public housing. You can have tiny, tiny land footprints devoted to huge amounts of electricity generation, which then frees up land for biodiversity, for rewilding, for um, uh, you know the kind of repair of all the ecological devastation that's 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 happened. Um, and so, you know, um, I think we need a, a vision of energy abundance uh, for a socialist future because uh, in nuclear power, again, it, it can generate abundant, reliable 24-7 energy. And um, but this this abundance is not just socialist sort of sloganeering like we, we need to recognize that around the world today, uh, about 800 million people have zero electricity access. So we need to find ways to, to, to deliver abundant, reliable energy to impoverished uh, uh, millions of people across the world. And, and there's a statistic I've been bringing up that it's not just people that have zero electricity access. When you look at the communities across the world that have very limited energy access, where there's, in, there's basically blackouts and they don't have a lot of electricity, it's about 3.3 billion people consume less energy on this planet than your typical refrigerator in the United States. So we're talking about a world of energy deprivation where most people don't have what we take for granted when we're doing a podcast like this, this sort of reliable electricity that we all kind of take for granted that does all these amazing things. We kind of just act as if like, you know, this is built up too far and it's too much. And we need, as, as Andrea said, we need to sort of commit to less energy. But when you talk about those 3.3 billion people across the world, they need more energy. And we need to have a program that can deliver abundant, reliable energy to, uh, you know, which I believe electricity should be like a human right for all 8 billion people on the planet. And if you really want to be serious about delivering that, you need to have a, 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 a suite of technologies that can that can actually deliver that, of course, and they have to be um, uh, zero carbon. And so, um, um, you know, uh, the last question you posed is about democracy. And I think there's this this kind of again, as Andrea was saying, like this sort of like we can't just say any particular technology is inherently undemocratic or inherently kind of authoritarian, which many people claim nuclear power is. But I think, um, again, if we democratize the relations of production like socialists would call for, and we actually had more uh, you know, unions and workers that had actual uh, democratic power over production and investment decisions and nuclear power plants, you could try to imagine how even if these are centralized power plants, they could be subject to much more democratic control and input. And of course, um, you know, there's many countries that have robust nuclear power um, 
sectors like France and Sweden that also have, you know, robust democratic civil societies and things like this. So, um, but I would want to take those democratizations a lot further. And I think imagining how, um, how we could actually decide again, not to say de facto, we need less energy or more energy, but actually democratize the question of energy and, and, and collectively debate how much energy do we need for uh, for transportation, for housing, and then collectively sort of democratically decide how much we need to generate. And I think that's perfectly uh, capable to be done with nuclear power. Now, I, I, I want to pick up on something you said there, which was um, that uh, it's often posed that nuclear energy means, for example, more uh, securitization and, and, and so on. So, I mean, naturally for me, you know, the, an essay that comes to mind is the Marxist Langdon Winner's famous uh, essay, Do Artifacts Have Politics? And, and basically in this essay, he, he says that by introducing, for example, nuclear energy um, or nuclear bombs into the world, um, that kind of technology, fission technology, by introducing fission technology into the world, you are necessitating also having, for example, a security state you know that that technologies like this um, have effects in that that they demand a certain political orientation to protect them from being stolen, for example, or or or, or so on. So, do you think that's not the case, or or is it the case that you think you know socialism will always have some level of, for example, a uh, you know security infrastructure like that? Yeah, that's a tough tough question. Um, and there's certainly the 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 capa- the propensity or, or I wouldn't even say propensity, there's the 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 chance that um, nuclear power generation can intermingle with nuclear weapons and and um, uh, military applications or security state applications. Um, and that's something to be concerned with. Uh, I would again point out that there are a lot of countries that have some of the most robust nuclear power programs like South Korea and Sweden that have zero nuclear weapons and zero military applications of these things. So there are at least empirical examples of countries that are able to develop robust nuclear electricity without diverting it into kind of security state applications. The question of security under socialism is something, you know, we can be a little, uh, uh, I think sometimes sort of utopic about socialism will just be a sort of this classless society and we won't have conflict anymore. Um, that certainly wasn't true um, with actually existing socialism. And obviously the Soviet Union uh, had this this experience. I, I've recently come across um, someone doing research on um, basically early Soviet planning, basically trying to plan their energy system for socialism. And they actually, and then as early as the 1930s, they were getting very excited about the potential of nuclear power as being, again, this sort of like harnessing the power of the sun as like this sort of end moment of communism where we actually create this kind of energy abundance for the future. So there was more sort of progressive and uh, optimistic visions of nuclear power deep in the history of Soviet kind of socialism and planning. But uh, the short answer to your question is I think we can we can robustly argue for nuclear power as a solution to climate change and robustly oppose the development of nuclear weapons and support things like non-proliferation agreements and the kind of scaling down of the nuclear weapons industry. Um, I think those things can be can be advocated for separately. Right. And I think um, it's, again, not inherent 
to a nuclear power industry to have it always be uh, entangled in these kind of military and security state applications. So um, I want to move things on a little bit, um, but Andre, so Matt mentions there, you know, this this kind of uh, the, the need for energy abundance uh, within socialism. And I suppose, you know, there is, you know, a question around uh, land use, for example, and this tension maybe within the idea of a fully, obviously nobody's proposing, a, you know, a, a grid in which there are no renewables, but there's a tension perhaps within a vision of a fully renewable grid that wind turbines, solar panels, these things take up a lot of land, particularly if we were thinking about extending electricity to uh, the 3.3 billion people in the world who who don't have regular access to it, and particularly if we wanted to think about rewilding more space um, and so on. So I, I wondered, uh, you know, obviously you're the expert on degrowth. I, I, I wonder whether for you these are these are considerations um, that uh, you know we can think of degrowth solutions to, for example. I mean, how how can it be the case that we can use less electricity while also giving more electricity to to 3.3 billion people who have no electricity? I mean, is the answer just to find a way to sort of meet in the middle, or or should we be thinking a different way? Yeah, we're thinking a lot about this notion of energy abundance, and I think it's a lie to give people this carrot to run after, like there will be energy abundance in some kind of socialist future, because for biophysical reasons, we live like on a finite planet, and this will always be true. And it cannot be the goal, like that everybody on Earth uses three the resources of three Earths a year, like the average US citizen does. This is clearly a problem. And also we see when we look at, for example, um, public health issues or education level and stuff like this in the US population, that this high energy consumption doesn't correlate um, with a lot of, like, with the US being the happiest, well-educated, most healthy country in the world, not at all. But, uh, but we see that wealth is very unequally distributed within also the US and that a lot of people suffer a lot um, from very unjust and unequal structures. And I'm sure that Matt is totally with me in this analysis. And um, so I agree with a goal of a good future for all, a degrowth future, an eco-socialist future should be abundance, but this abundance will not be measured in the size of, of your fridge, um, but this abundance will be measured in the amount of relationships um, between people and in the amount of non-abusive and non-exploitative relationships, which includes the relationships on your workplace, in your home place, which includes gender equality, which includes anti-racist politics. And I think this is so important and does so, I mean, this creates abundance, a good living together. And of course, um, it is a problem that a lot of people on this earth don't have access basic energy, but it's not about like giving them the promise of energy abundance and have, having a big fridge like the US citizen has, but it's about like providing 
maybe a small fridge providing light <laughs> and providing like access to heating where it's cold and access to cooking stuff where you want to cook and like what what people need like it's it's a very finite range of of needs you do have in daily life right and it's good to make them um easier and to really talk about a totally other distribution of resources and of course also of energies worldwide so so if i could press you a bit andrea like what trade-offs do you think would be worth the future you know that we want um i mean not not just in terms of sort of personal consumer consumption sizes of fridges and so on but you know for example like is it worth us giving up more land space for uh you know many many wind turbines or giving over lots of fields to to solar panels you know the clearly in, in addition to sort of consumer uh trade-offs you know we were talking about some kind of quite sort of large sort of social and perhaps even in the case of you know land land use environmental trade-offs yeah totally i mean i am now working in a research project here in the region where i live in um in eastern germany which is uh which is a place where there was the actually existing socialist states and where we saw that they were not environmentally friendly at all. Um, but we have like to try other paths of what could it mean um, to live beyond capitalism than what we have seen here. And we are conducting this research project. It's a big um, agro-solar park on 550 hectares. And it was started by local farmers because they didn't earn enough money anymore because climate change has brought so much drought here in the region so that they cannot live off their land and they are looking for new income perspectives. And we are thinking about, okay, how can this massive solar park um, on this land, how can it be constructed in a way that you can possibly do agriculture below these solar panels, for example, talking about um, double use of land. And I think that could be one, one way to go. The other is how can local communities profit from this kind of investments and how can they, with the money that's flowing um, from this kind of investments, build more emancipatory and other communal structures that create regional development in a, in a sense of what I said before, like good relationships and not profit that is flowing away from the peripheric regions to the, to the metropoles all the times. Like for 10 years, I've been thinking now about convivial technologies a lot, like the questions, how can technologies for a degrowth society really look like? And I would really advocate for taking the most simple and the less toxic possibility for each single case that is possible in each context. Like there is no, no need for making it more complicated than it has to be and for um, making it bigger and more centralized and stuff because being able to control and in a democratic way and also in a technological way, being able to control technology, I think is a very important feature also for a degrowth society and a feature that people and also industries have a kind of sensitive relationship to what comes out 
off your wall when you plug in your lamp or uh, any device because oftentimes this is a kind of a black box and people do feel in our times now like in the big cities of the early industrialized countries like they live in energy abundance they never think about where is this coming from and i think this is really a big problem that we are living in a state of this kind of alienation not to realize whom we sacrifice with our decisions and that is of course not something that can be solved on an individual consumerist level but it has to be solved on a societal level but the societal level is not something that is out there in the national parliament but the societal level it's a lot about municipalities about people engaging at the place where they live in the local politics and in the regional politics and really like taking power back and getting responsible for your direct environment i think i mean this leads us to 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 a great area of conversation which is is really around agency right and and who has the agency to to bring about these changes and the the, the changes that in in the way we want to see them so it it's clearly also not the case that renewables for example are in and of themselves beneficial to communities i remember we ran a interesting story in, in, in a climate focus that we did at Navarro a couple of years ago um, about why indigenous communities are fighting wind farms in Norway. And this was a story about how um, the Sami parliament, Sami being the, the indigenous peoples of, of northern Norway, um, and uh, Sami reindeer herders were campaigning against the the establishment of, of wind farms that would disrupt the flow of reindeer, which is their primary form of work. And of course, uh, you know, an enormous historic tradition. But the uh, you know the wind car companies, for example, were you know dealing with uh, Norway directly and you know owned on the back end by a German investment group and and so on and so forth. I'm sure you know the story. But um, it's clear to me that there's a tension sometimes when we speak about sort of decarbonizing the economy um, or even establishing eco socialism that we are in some sense riding the coattails of of green capitalism and we we we're some in some sense relying on green investment uh, on capitalist terms and i think this is this is quite uncomfortable and of course if we want to talk about establishing whether it's establishing new nuclear power plants or establishing vast wind farms and 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 enormous uh, you know batteries uh, sort of speculative long running batteries then we're also talking about collaboration with existing energy companies are we not or is it the case that what we need to do is is sort of crush our enemies first, and then uh, we can move on to uh, to establishing um, you know eco socialism. I mean, how do we go about laying the roots for the, for the future we want to see in, in in the here and now? You know, who are the agents to do that? Do you think? Um, if I could give it to you, Matthew. Uh, the kind of classical Marxist vision of the agent of transformation is is the working class, right? And if we sort of understand that to solve the climate crisis, to solve it's going to require sort of a radical, you know, restructuring. I think the IPC said something sort of radical restructuring of all aspects of society. And I think degrowth people are calling for the same thing, kind of a radical transformation of how we live and how 
So um, a, a Marxist approach believes that the working class sort of has the power and the agency to kind of deliver that kind of radical transformation simply because they're the vast majority of society. They live through this kind of insecurity that capitalism deprives them of sort of meeting their basic needs. And so they have a kind of material interest in transformative change. And the fact that the working class does all the work and they they have the knowledge and skills and power to kind of shut down production and go on strike. They can create a crisis. The West Virginia teachers in the United States went on strike and um, within two weeks won their demands just simply by shutting down the state's school systems. And so I, I think the UK is seeing this, that just the, the workers are remembering kind of the leverage they have by going on strike and, and, and by forcing a crisis that, that forces elites to kind of answer to a set of demands. Um, but when it comes uh, to climate change, I think there's a lot of important discussion about the role of expanding the kind of care economy under a low carbon, uh, uh, a low carbon socialist society, like expanding childcare, expanding education, expanding healthcare, and that's all great. But the unfortunate part is that climate change is ultimately a crisis that's rooted in our industrial system of producing electricity and steel and cement and all this kind of dirty stuff. So we actually have to think about how we transform that realm of necessity before we can kind of expand the care economy and have this like sort of abundant realm of freedom that we all want. And so for that realm, I, I really think the climate movement doesn't pay enough attention to industrial workers, to the actual uh, electricians, the actual line workers, the actual power plant workers that are in this sector that we need to transform, who in many cases have uh, high degrees of union organization, have high degrees of power. And um, if we're gonna rebuild the world and move off this industrial fossil fuel system, we're gonna need to harness the skills, the knowledge, the expertise of the very workers in that industrial system. So it's not just electricity workers, but it's going to all the kind of things we sort of wrap into sort of like the building trades of the people who will build new public transit, build new energy generation, build new public housing. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, climate movements um, are often contained in kind of more professional class, educated uh, knowledge worker type context. And, and there's a lot of sort of disconnect between those types of activists and those types of um movement actors, there's a disconnect with them and the actual industrial workers who are going to be necessary to kind of delivering the kind of change we need. So um, if I'll just end with one last thing, I've rambled too long, but um, I, I was traveling in Europe uh, in the fall to do some events around um, my book and some that combined my book with degrowth the conversations. And I was in um, Denmark and was hanging out with a lot of the kind of environmental and degrowth and other activists, and they were all talking about, you know, um, climate justice and solidarity with the global south. And at the same time, Denmark had an election where a lot of those industrial workers, particularly people in the wind industry, uh, you know, the green industry, we definitely want to expand. Those workers were voting for the right in a kind of shift to the right in the Denmark Danish elections. So I think that's a great example of this kind of disconnect where we have a lot of like sort of middle class professional knowledge working uh, urban climate activists who don't have much connection with the actual industrial workers that are going to have to be at the center of the, the agency to transform the system. So, What do you say to that, Andrea? Because obviously you're invested in a, in a strategy of degrowth, but you know, where, where is the constituency for that and how do, or how do we build it? 
if we talk about like Marxist theory, it's very important here to go back to Rosa Luxemburg because she talked about the so-called original accumulation, like exploiting the care work of people and benefiting on it and making profit on it. And that's how capitalism works. Like it's exploiting not only the wage worker, but also the person who washes the underpants for the wage worker. And I think the problem is like as much as I love to work together with trade unions, and I think we should try it all the time we can, but it is a fact that a lot of these unionized white and male working class workers vote for the right, as you said, because they are very deeply involved in the imperial mode of living. They are profiteers from the exploitation of women, of queers, of people of color, of black people worldwide via very long supply chains and energy production somewhere else and uh, care work in the household, etc. And therefore, I really think it is very hard to stuck to those now nearly 200-year-old analysis of Marx that these kind of working class will be the pillar of transformation. I don't think they will. Um, and it's very sad, but I think if we really honestly look at the political movements and what's happening worldwide now, we see that there is upcoming a kind of authoritarian threat that is supported a lot by especially white men fearing to lose their um, special ability just by their gender and by their um, by their race to exploit other people and I think this is a yeah this is really a something we have to see and so we have to turn to other people and ask ourselves how can these movements align more closely to to be able to depict a new future that really stands for a good life for all and uh, coming back, and this is the last thing um, on this, I will say, to the question of energy, we see very clearly here that to give back self-determination and power over your own life in your communities, all these kinds of renewable energies are so very helpful for this process. And I still think it's the only way to go. Um, to really invest there. And then we can still fight over if this nuclear power plant now should be shut down tomorrow or in two years. I'm totally open to this kind of discussion. But I think we really have to think profoundly of this new type of society and not be too shy to take over too much of the old structures because we don't need them anymore. They just hinder us in really thinking about what could be a good life for all. Matt, I can see you taking lots of notes uh, and you're itching to go. I mean, tell me, you know, can, <laughs> can, can there be atoms for care? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great slogan. Um, I, I do want to clarify something. Um, I think I agree with Andrea completely that um, care work should be seen as part of the realm of necessity. You know, I think scholars like, Aaron Beninoff have, you know, thought about like, you know, 
thinking about this distinction as basically any society is going to have a lot of very difficult drudgery work and, and a socialist society would would kind of be best oh and i'm sorry for my dog barking but um that's fine the socialist socialist society would uh be committed to sharing that work um as equitably as possible so our society really uh, burdens that work on a heavily gendered female um, workforce uh, and also precarious immigrant workers and so um that's it's something, again, in socialism, we'd have to figure out how to share that. What I was trying to say is that if we're talking about climate change, though, um, you know, it is actually the realm of necessity for climate change is really about industrial production. Uh, it's about reforming our reliance on fossil fuels. So, for instance, we could expand childcare, we could expand hospitals, we could expand the care economy and, and in a socialist society. But if that whole care economy is, is powered by coal and, and oil and natural gas, it's not going to solve the climate change issue, right? So the, for the climate change issue, it's really about industrial production. It's, 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 it's about, it is about that kind of 200 year old vision of like seizing the, the means of production, seizing industrial systems to try to transform them for a, a better world. So I think we can learn from that kind of working class politics about uh, seizing industrial production. The last thing is I think the problem is, um, as you acknowledge, a lot of these industrial workers, whether they're unionized or not, they're moving to the right. The, the sort of former parties of the working class are increasingly shifting to highly educated, often very affluent, middle upper class professional type people. Um, and this process of, you know, Thomas Piketty is identified as educational polarization. Uh, this is not a good process, and this is not a process that's going to help the left or help, um, uh, certainly not help us solve climate change. And I think this kind of, unfortunately, again, in these highly educated urban activist milieus, there can be a kind of politics that's quite disdainful and derisive of these industrial workers, and that's what's pushing them to the right. So when we tell these workers they're part of some imperialist mode of living, when, when we call them profiteers off some sort of like exploitation of the global south, we're not acknowledging that actually for the last four decades, these industrial workers have been attacked by capital, by a neoliberal class offensive that has been, you know, attacking their unions, attacking their standard of living, uh, attacking their wages, throwing them into debt. So there's, so when we tell them they're imperialist profiteers, we're just you know, we're no different than the capitalists who have been attacking them and, and imposing austerity on them for, for decades. So I really think we, again, we're quite disconnected from these unions, from these workers. And we, and, and we certainly um, don't have a lot of solidarity building and, and actual movement building with these types of workers. But if we're sitting here and, 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 and actively constructing theory and program and politics that, that sort of derides and denigrates these workers, Again, we're just throwing under the bus the very workers we need to solve this very industrial problem of climate change. And, and I think and even apart from climate change, we're we're just pushing these workers to the right and increasingly authoritarian right, which is a disaster for the world and for society. So, um, yeah, I'll stop there. OK, so I want to I want to round things off a little bit. And I'm, I suppose what I want to ask is, you know, we're in the situation where the climate is warming we have to decarbonize the economy. Our enemies are in power in a lot of places. Uh, the friends are in power in very few places, let's put it that way. And, you know, when it comes to nuclear energy, I think we have 
decisions that, as Andrea said earlier, you know, have uh, whichever decision we make, uh, you know, we're talking about ramifications long into the future. Um, so what exactly do we owe future generations? Uh, Andrea, I'll take you first. I think we owe them <laughs> to not leave them a destroyed planet on which they don't know how to, like, how to grow their food, basically. Because with these unpredictable changes in the climate, which is uh, the IPCC report now is um, saying that it's very likely to come. We just don't know which crops will grow in which part of the world, which takes us back to care. I think it is such an important factor of care for future generations to, to let them decide in which kind of society they want to live as much as that is possible and to leave them like soil and water and places where to grow their food like in the most um, in the way they want to and this is what we are now taking away from them in the way we our societies and economies are structured and so, so Matt same question to you I wrote the book on climate change when, um, or I decided to write it basically because I had a child. And um, in 2015, my daughter's uh, seven years old now, and starting to think about my daughter um, reaching retirement age in 2080 and, and thinking about what the planet is going to look like for her at that time. And it made me very angry, angry that we've known about this crisis for decades and we've not been able to, to build the kind of social movement that can actually address it. And as you know, emissions went up again in 2022 to a record high. And also fossil fuels in 2022 and 2023 are as profitable as they've ever been. Um, and, uh, and, and so we live in a society that seems quite comfortable just creating that destroyed planet for my daughter and many other daughters and sons and, and other people um, uh, into the future generations. So my perspective on this, though, is um, to actually address this planetary scale crisis, this global crisis. We we're going to have to think big. Uh, we're, we, we, it, you know, I'm all for rebuilding community and rebuilding sort of neighborhood level, uh, you know, social relationships and things like gardens and things um, like small solar co-ops in a community. And that's all good, but we're not going to decarbonize one neighborhood and community at a time. It's going to have to be a big social project that's about transforming all of society and all of the social relations of production that underpin this global social industrial production system that's careening the planet towards disaster. I think for all its um, limits and faults, the the Green New Deal movement was about you know a, a massive <laughs> uh, public sector led investment program that would 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 scale up uh, clean energy across society across society right to to really solve the crisis on the scale that is required and that's the, the you know that's kind of the, the the word we hear about climate change we need speed and scale of action and so for that you know we need to actually think about social movements that are extremely powerful at the national and global scales. And um, I think personally that 
because the left and working class movements and labor movement has been so disempowered for the last several decades um, under neoliberalism, we've only been able to see agency or power or any kind of influence over anything at highly localized scales and community scales and neighborhood scales. And, and, and sometimes I think the left can be quite comfortable in creating these kind of, uh, you know, what some call nowtopias and these very micro scales. Uh, and that's all great, but climate change will continue to get worse while little enclaves of nautopias exist in, in places. So we need to think big. We need to think about seizing power at a much larger scale. And, and that's what's required to actually confront the, the power of these of these fossil fuel capitalists who are, again, careening the planet towards disaster. So um, but we do have to think big and we do have to think at a large scale if we're going to if we're going to leave a planet uh, for future generations. OK, I think we'll wrap things up there. Um, Andrea, Matt, thank you so much for joining Navarra FM. Thanks so much. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support.